The Gospel according to Luke, chapter 10, beginning at verse 38. Now as they went on their way, he entered a certain village where a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. She had a sister named Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to what he was saying. But Martha was distracted by her many tasks, so she came to him and asked, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to do all the work by myself? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and distracted by many things. There is need of only one thing. Mary has chosen the better part, which will not be taken away from her. In the Christian tradition, ministers routinely preach out of a passage from the Bible, often dictated by the lectionary, which is a list of readings coinciding with the calendar. For Christians, Scripture is the source of inspiration and wisdom because it is God's word. They must accept it, learn from it, and find meaning and guidance in it, even if it appears troubling or even abhorrent. Unitarian Universalist clergy usually preach thematically. We choose a subject, make an argument, and cite whatever authorities we can find to support our view, whether the Bible, the Bhagavad Gita, the Boston Globe, or Lady Gaga. Sometimes I envy the Christian preacher, mining the ore of scripture with a fine pick, scraping out every last sliver of meaning from the old stories, returning to the same vein again and again, and finally praying that the Holy Spirit may descend upon the pulpit in the nick of time. By the time I departed my high Episcopalian childhood, I felt so intimidated by and resentful of the Bible that I couldn't open one for over two decades. Even entering divinity school, when I went to purchase a Bible for class, I hesitated to touch it lest it be radioactive. I still flinch at the misuse of the Bible to promote fear, hatred, and violence. But with guides like Harvey Cox, Marcus Borg, and Margaret Bullitt Jonas, I gradually lost my reflexive aversion to the text. Some of its teachings I reject as the distortions of particular human beings or societies under stress, but there are too many great stories there to pass by. One of these is Luke's vignette of Martha and Mary, a classic of psychology and spirituality in barely a hundred words. After 2,000 years, it's as fresh as this morning's coffee. Can't you just see it? Two sisters host the charismatic young teacher everyone is talking about, an itinerant rabbi whose touch it is said can heal, whose gaze arrests, whose voice calls people out of their ordinary routine lives to rise up and follow him. He comes into their home with his intense presence and boisterous laugh and a faint trace of sorrow and his paradoxical sayings about the first being last and, and the poor being blessed and the kingdom of God not being here and not being there. And you want to hang on his every word. But the table must be set and the food made ready and the glasses filled and refilled. And Martha does it all. 
Martha always does it all. If she doesn't do it, who will? But she seethes with resentment. She doesn't ask for help. If people want to help, they should offer. She shouldn't have to ask. And her own sister, Mary, just sits there at the feet of this man, drinking it all in and not lifting a finger. How can she be so selfish, so immature? So Martha goes to the teacher and rats on her sister. It's classic triangulation. Instead of asking Mary to help, instead of asking everyone to help, she goes to a third party and complains. Don't you see what she's doing, she demands? Tell her to help me. And Jesus sides with Mary. Can you believe it? He says Mary has chosen the better part. Laziness is the better part. Well, no. This is a very carefully crafted story, rich with nuance. Jesus does not deny the importance of Martha's work. He knows the food must be cooked, the dishes cleared, the household maintained. But he notices, he notices how these tasks have taken possession of Martha. How distracted she is by her worries and her grievances. How can she hear the message of hope and healing he's trying to offer when she's so busy nursing grudges? Jesus gets Martha. He gets that she's become addicted to her responsibility. Beset by obligations, she has lost touch with the present moment, lost sight of her own inner light, lost the opportunity to be transformed. Instead of spiritually uplifted, she's become petty and petulant. Martha, Martha, he repeats, both to express his caring and to seize her attention. Then he minces no words in holding up a mirror to what has become of her. And yes, Jesus should have offered to help with the dishes himself. And I'm sure were the story said in 2013 or even 1972, he would. But Mary, Mary is free. She isn't trapped in a role of good girl or dutiful housewife. She has chosen, chosen the better part. Choice is freedom. That's the meaning of this story, I think, and also its challenge to us. Do we choose our lives? Can we choose our lives? The tasks we undertake or forego, the spirit in which we perform them. Or have we become drudges automatons, zombies, reacting predictably to stimuli, going through the motions because that's what's expected of us and that's what we did yesterday. Do we wake in the morning with to-do lists forming mechanically in our minds? Or do we wake with a feeling of delight, possibility, 
curiosity at what the day will call forth from us. If Jesus or the Buddha or Gandhi or Mother Teresa came to dinner at our house, would we miss most of it? Because we were in the kitchen doing the dishes. Could the dishes wait? The story challenges us as well as a religious community. Are we a Martha church or a Mary church? Are we an aggregation of committees and task forces or are we dedicated to transformation and spiritual depth? Are we asleep or are we awake? The answer, of course, is both. Each of us is asleep and awake. Each of us doing and being. Each of us matter and spirit, both. That's the nature of being human. Our task, I think, is to find balance so that the work does not overwhelm who we are, so that matter does not crowd out spirit, so we do not sleepwalk through our lives. How do we create space for Mary in our congregations and in our lives? I'm not suggesting mass resignations from our committees and task forces. I'm in enough trouble with Susan Shepherd already. But I invite each of you to serve mindfully and joyfully. Each of you must give as you have made up your mind, wrote Paul to the church at Corinth, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. When the joy has gone out of it, when we find ourselves more resentful than rewarded, more aggrieved by others' failure to help than filled with the satisfaction of service, maybe that's the time to step back, to rest, and to heal our wounded spirits. The question is not what I'm asked to do, but what am I called to do? From time to time, I invite some of you to take leadership positions in our congregation. Some of you accept, some decline. The refusals please me as much as the assents. I'm glad when people pay attention to the water level in the well of the Spirit, lest it be drained by overcommitment. Service can be deeply spiritual if mindful. Thich Nhat Hanh, the Zen teacher and peace activist, talks of washing the dishes in order to wash the dishes. By this he means not to tolerate washing the dishes as a means to an end, but rather to experience fully the miracle of the present moment. Thich Nhat Hanh says, you know, it's really not so bad to wash the dishes once you're actually washing the dishes because you have the, the warm water, the, boat, the soap bubble, the smooth china, or the necked china, the gift of two hands, perhaps with fingers that can grasp and lift. Picking up the dirty socks of one's spouse or partner or child 
can be an act of subservience, resentment, generosity, love, or prayer. It all depends on the spirit in which it is performed. We have to take the time in our lives to cultivate spiritual wholeness, whether through prayer, meditation, yoga, tai chi, a morning walk, inspirational reading, playing a musical instrument, dance. Sunday worship should be the beginning of spiritual practice, not the end of it. And if you're seeking a spiritual practice and wondering where to begin, I'd love to talk with you about it. Or Lilia would too. As we sustain and build our church community, let us approach each task as a form of ministry, a way of caring, an act of devotion. When we work together, let us heed Kathleen McTeague's charge to resist the headlong tumble into the next moment until we claim for ourselves awareness and gratitude, taking time to look into one another's faces and see their communion. Congregational leaders can nourish the spirit by offering opening words at every meeting. Wonderful readings can be found in the back of our hymnal, in anthologies like Earth Prayers, in the online worship web of the Unitarian Universalist Association, in the poetry of Rumi and Mary Oliver and Naomi Chihab Nye. After these opening words, we can invite each person to check in, not with a laundry list of the day's activities, but with a brief reflection on the state of the heart or the state of the soul. In our personal lives, in our responsibilities to family and friends, in the multitude of demands of the holiday season, we can check our joys against our duties, our obligations against our compulsions, and ask ourselves honestly what fills our reservoirs of spirit and what depletes them. Not expecting our lives to be all joy and no duty, but hoping for some kind of balance. We owe this attention to each other and to ourselves and to the holy, lest we become all Martha, no Mary. In the 14th century, an anonymous English monk authored The Cloud of Unknowing, a classic of Western mysticism. Commenting on Martha and Mary, he, he posited higher and lower degrees of the active life. In the lower, he wrote, we do well to busy ourselves with good deeds and the works of mercy. In the higher, we begin to meditate on things of the spirit. In the lower degree, he wrote, much of our natural human potential is left untapped. We live, as it were, outside of ourselves or beneath ourselves. As we advance to the higher degree, we become increasingly interior, living more from our depths and becoming, therefore, more fully human. As Unitarian Universalists, we are called to serve each other and the wider community. We are called to work for justice, for peace, for the healing of creation. We are called as well to spiritual growth, 
to plunge deep into the waters of consciousness, to swim toward the beckoning light, to risk transformation, to risk transformation into our true self. Amen. Ashe. And blessed.